The term comfort women, I usually would use inverted commas when I refer to that to highlight that it is a euphemistic term. It's really an English translation of the Japanese term yugunyanfu, and it's highly problematic, I guess, because the characterization here of the women as providing comfort in the context of the so called comfort women system,、um, because the women, in fact, were forced to provide sex and、uh, they were raped repeatedly. So, this violence against the women is completely obscured by the word comfort. And some survivors themselves, notably Jan Rafa Hearn, strongly reject this term. Um, and in Indonesia, what I've noticed is the term hasn't really been sufficiently problematized yet. So sometimes the Japanese term yuganyanfu is still used, or wanita penghibur, which means、uh, sort of woman entertainer. But it's similarly also euphemistic. So I think that terminology really matters, but unfortunately, this is the term that is most identified with this experience of women who were subjected to enforced military prostitution by the Japanese army during World War II. So, my name is Kate McGregor, and I am a professor of history at the University of Melbourne here in Australia. And I've been researching Indonesian history for several decades now. And my research focuses on memory, violence, and Fairly recent episodes in Indonesian history, by, by which I mean modern Indonesian history. Kate, thanks for joining us today on Realms of Memory. You're welcome. One of the first、uh, Indonesian women to really speak out about this past is a woman by the name of Tumina, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Could、yes. you talk a little, bit, a little bit about her significance? Who was she? What, what was her story? You, you, you talk at length about her memorialization and, and what that reveals about that. This particular history and, and, and memory in, in Indonesia. Thanks for that, Rick. Yes, I guess Tamina is very important for so many reasons. She was the first Indonesian survivor to speak out about her experiences, so that was in 1992. And she was inspired, like many other women from different countries, by Kim Hak Sun. But I, interestingly, she was also encouraged by a Um, a resident in Indonesia at the time, a Japanese man who was working as a pastor called Kumuri Koichi. She was encouraged by her connections to him to also speak out、uh, on this topic. So it's fascinating for me, number one, that it was in the context of a connection to a Japanese person that she was encouraged to speak out about this. But her story was also quite different to that of most survivors because she disclosed when she did、uh, come out with this memory. That she'd been working as a sex worker before being forcibly recruited into this system of the Japanese、uh, comfort women system. And so she offered, through an interview with Kimura, I think, a very rare first person account also of what it was like to actually be a sex worker in the late colonial period. And there's almost no other accounts. We hardly ever see a first person account from a sex worker at this point in history. So That account was also fascinating in terms of her disclosing that her virginity was sold by her family、uh, to a Dutch man, and also that she was primarily engaging in this sex work to feed her siblings and her family. So it was very much a sense that she was kind of sacrificing, willingly or not, herself for her family. And the interesting thing also about her memorial or her renovated gravesite is that it was. You know, only completed you know, fairly recently, so many years after her death. And it was supported by Kamira Kuichi, who remembered her, but also other Japanese people back in Japan who wanted to honor her as the first Indonesian woman to speak out. 
and also by Indonesian activists who have continued to this day to also campaign on this issue and to also support the remaining survivors. So I argue in my book that even though Tamina was this incredible woman, incredibly brave, who spoke out very early, she seemed to quickly fade from the spotlight and she was not, you know, put forward as an example of sort of the the, the survivor to be promoted the most by, for example, the key organisation that advocated for the women, Indonesian Legal Aid. So I really wanted to explore in my book why that was so and at the same time her very interesting story and what it tells us as well. Okay. So, and you mentioned, well, there's a, there's a, a larger history here and that you can't understand uh, what happens during World War II if you don't go back in time and look at uh, this larger history of, uh, of prostitution uh, uh, that uh, stretches back to the colonial period. So w- what is this, uh, what's the prehistory of, 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 of the system in Indonesia, in Indonesia? Yeah, I guess one continuity between the Dutch colonial period and the Japanese occupation uh, is this kind of, I guess, the fact that women were repeatedly treated as kind of something to be traded or a resource or available for exploitation. So I guess in my book I you know, cover 100 years of history. I go way back in time in, in, in order to try and unearth what was the, the context uh, when the Japanese arrived in Indonesia in terms of women's position within society, their structural position in terms of relations of power and how they had been sexually exploited until that time. So in terms of I think that that context and also how they were treated by other Indonesians is very important for understanding how it was possible that they could also be exploited. So I guess that my book takes a structural approach to that to try and understand uh, the conditions that made this system possible. So when the Japanese entered Indonesia in 1942, there was already a gender order at work there, I guess, and in which Indonesian women were already treated as, for example, sexually available to Dutch men through the system. Well, it wasn't really a, a kind of implemented system, but it was a common practice of taking women as nyai, which means kind of live-in um a live-in housemaid who may also be sexually exploited by a Dutch man, and this is due to the fact that there were very few uh, Dutch women living in the colony originally, so a lot of Indonesian women were exploited in this way, and sometimes if they had children from that relationship, the children was up to the Dutch man whether to decide to claim those children as legitimate. So there was, was already this precedent, actually, of Dutch men exploiting Indonesian women and interestingly also Dutch soldiers. There was such a thing as uh, barracks concubinage whereby soldiers who often could not afford to bring a Dutch wife to the colony would actually have also so-called concubines or or Indonesian women uh, for kind of serving in that function, same sort of function as as a nyai. And I guess another important aspect to gender that made the system possible as well was a system of patriarchy in terms of relationships between men and women in Indonesia. Women were also expected to kind of follow men, especially fathers or elder men, in terms of uh, relationships of trust, so that when the occupation occurred and women were told uh, or given instructions from, for example, a village head, you know, you need to go with these Japanese soldiers, then they trusted these people and most likely could not resist 
because of relations of patriarchy uh, according to which they're expected to follow their fathers or follow male leaders in society. So this also made the conditions of exploitation uh, more ripe, I guess, for the implementation of this system. So you mentioned in the case of Indonesia that uh, there's a long history of exploitation of women, but also this system of trust that that grows out of the culture that uh, this patriarchal system in which uh, if uh, if a village head a man uh, or a father uh, asked uh, a daughter uh, to uh, to uh, take part in something which maybe it's, it's a question mark uh, how aware they are of what what this actually is maybe the village head might be but the father might not that uh, there, there's this unquestioning obedience uh, and uh, and that in the case of Indonesia it seems like there are some high profile people that, that that are tied up in this or tied into this particular history um, so I was hoping you could talk about well, who are these people that are tied into this history? What, what's their what's their motivation for for cooperating, for collaborating uh, in this uh, in this system, and how does this complicate dealing with this past for Indonesians? Thanks for that, Rick. Yeah, I guess well, the most famous case of collaboration is really Sukarno, who at the time is, I guess, a high profile nationalist who's been exiled by the Dutch, but the Japanese kind of give Sukarno um, some political room to move. But Sukarno is quite clearly identified as a person who chose to collaborate with the Japanese. And the argument often is that he chose to collaborate on the basis that he was going to use that opportunity, the kind of mouthpiece that the Japanese gave him, as an opportunity to kind of at the same time spread Indonesian nationalism. So the strategy that the the Japanese military used in every country they arrived in was to kind of make an assessment of how developed nationalism was. And especially in the island of Java, they allowed opportunities for nationalists, um, but at the same time expected things from them. So in terms of, you know, what kind of concessions did Sukarno make in terms of this collaboration with the Japanese, he was allowed to move around Indonesia and make speeches to kind of rally Indonesians. But Yes, his collaboration is also well known and most famously he's known for, for example, encouraging Indonesians to volunteer to be um, what we call ramusha or forced labourers and a lot of people died in forced labour. But also in his uh, famous memoir, which he narrated um, to an American journalist, he also disclosed that when he was in Sumatra, he actually volunteered for women who were working as sex workers to become, you know, to be available for the Japanese military. So it seems that he volunteered these women. And in his memoir, it's described as kind of a process of negotiation, but we don't really have the other side of the story, what happened there. But his whole logic was that he was volunteering these women in order to save what he described as our maidens, meaning presumably women who were virgins and not sex workers. So there are repeated examples of women being seen as expendable. And it's interesting, again, that it's the women engaging in sex work who are volunteered first for this system because of the assumption that this will just be the same deal for them. But, in fact, we know in this system the women were actually detained, not able to leave, uh, and also, you know, not able to dictate their hours of work, for example. So there were a lot of restrictions around the women who were placed in this system. And often the women who were seen as expendable 
might have been not only sex workers but perhaps also poorer girls and women with less familial resources or social capital to resist. And in the examples of village heads and their complicity, I I also wanted to try to detail in my book rather than just simply judging each person who did collaborate in this system and even, you know, women who felt that they had no choice, inverted commas, to also, you know, who ended up in this system, I wanted to try and also evoke the context of an occupation in which the Japanese military uh, and were, you know, armed. They were armed walking around uh, in daily life with weapons and expecting deference. And if they didn't get deference, they could also make threats of violence and, indeed, they carried out those threats of violence. So we also hear in some cases where, you know, uh, there's an attempt to take a daughter away from a family and a father resists but is then, uh, you know, beaten or perhaps even killed. So it's a very difficult context of trying to resist as well. So I think it's important to always remember that context when we think as well about collaboration. For Sakano, he would have had more political power, but at a maybe lower level of families uh, and village heads, how much capacity did they have to resist? And in that context, you know, who did they put forward as their kind of sacrifices for the village also became a question of power and some people of course did act pragmatically and just struck a deal with the Japanese um, maybe out of fear maybe possibly out of opportunity in some cases as well but it's important I guess to just reflect on that whole context of a quite frightening military occupation as well. Could you describe what it was like for these women who took part in this system of uh, of uh, sexual violence, of of uh, military prostitution. However, we label this. What was it like entering into this? What conditions did they? How did they experience this? What type of violence did they experience? Yeah, sure. So, I guess who took part in it? If we think about the Yanjo, which is the name of the places of detention in which the women were held, and and those were very varied. Uh, then there would probably be guards there, and often those guards might be local people. And remember, the Japanese military is also comprised of some Korean soldiers as well, so it could be a combination of people. And sometimes there might also have been some Japanese civilians involved with running these yanjo. But the so-called people who come to the yanjo are primarily uh, Japanese military, but also some Japanese civilians in terms of uh, people who come to abuse the women. Uh, and then there would have been cooks and all kinds of other people who also helped run these run these places. But the women and girls, and I use the term girls deliberately because some of these uh, people were very young as well. So the women were taken, women and girls were taken in a variety of circumstances. Some were simply kidnapped and that seemed to especially occur when the Ianjo were close to uh, or in the military sort of uh, military centre town somewhere like Chimahi in Bandung or maybe um, Magalang. So first some women were either kidnapped, others were deceived with promises that they were going to receive an education or perhaps another kind of job, perhaps as, for example, a factory worker or a nurse, etc. So they were deceived sometimes into travelling far from their homes 
So I think we can even consider that violence began from that moment of a kind of process of entrapment of these women or kidnapping. They were taken or captured or transported often far from their local networks and that meant that they were also removed from sources of support. Once they arrived inside the Anjur, they were subjected to daily violence, sexual violence through uh, through rape, but they were also forcibly detained. They weren't able to leave the Ianjo. They were guarded, as I mentioned before, and they didn't have freedom in terms of how many hours of the day or when they would be so-called working. And they were also subjected to forced medical examinations and treatments to prevent venereal disease and prevent pregnancy. If the women also did not follow the wishes of the soldiers, they could be beaten. And uh, I think so there's also that constant threat of violence if you don't also follow what is desired yeah so you really need to understand and that was one of the things the things that surprised me is that they're living in these walled guarded um, types of prisons really i mean it's really a type of uh, imprisonment they experienced yeah i think that's really important to remember especially when there are kind of uh, attempts to dismiss the women's experiences so if you look at this history of, of sexual violence and you think about the criminality of it, you have these Tokyo trials after the war, top uh, Japanese officials uh, uh, are, are put on trial um, and you have trials that, that happened in Nuremberg uh, uh, addressing the Holocaust. Uh, how, how is this history of sexual violence dealt with uh, in the Tokyo trials? Yeah, so I guess um, the Tokyo trials, I think it's also really important to remember that they take place also during uh, you know, the American occupation of Japan, and they're focusing really on kind of the large and what might have been most visible, I guess, crimes at the time, like crimes against peace, which means engaging in a war of aggression. So they wanted the trials also desired to send this message that this was an aggressive war, right, a war of aggression. And um, big cases like the Nanjing Massacre, other kinds of massacres um, were a big part of, of this trial. But what I find interesting is that sexual violence was only really mentioned in relation to the Nanjing Massacre as part of a larger story of the brutal violence there. So sexual violence wasn't something I think that the prosecutors were directly investigating or looking for. It seemed to be more incidental, but that goes to uh, kind of the, the context of the time in which I think sexual violence wasn't completely conceptualised at that time as kind of a crime and maybe also there wasn't complete understanding of this system at that time as well. So you do have a series of treaties uh, after the war in which Japan has to pay damages for, for what happened um, during its occupation of these different different areas. Um, but you point out that these, the way in which Japan is is has to make amends has some serious limits, and the victims are disadvantaged in, in particular ways. Uh, what's the nature of, of how Japan has to make amends for this past? 
Yeah, so I guess uh, Japan makes amends or as a government primarily through the signing of several treaties. Uh, and so for each country, if we look at Korea, if we look at Indonesia, there is a treaty. And if you think about the terms of that treaty, it's also very interesting to look at what the terms of the treaty are. In one sense, it might be a product of kind of expectations and values at that time and also the needs of each country. But it's very noticeable, I guess, coming from where we stand today, that there is far less emphasis on individual rights and compensation. But the terms of those treaties are to some extent, I think, also mediated by, uh, by I guess, I believe, by US influence also over Japan. Um, so like the early San Francisco Treaty, um, it, it reflects Japan's evolving relationship with the United States and Cold War concerns in particular. So the U.S. Um, was particularly concerned in the Tokyo trials, as I mentioned, to to deal with war crimes. Um, but over time, even people who had been found guilty of war crimes, um, their sentences were reduced uh, as the new Cold War concerns kind of overtook this. Uh, and there was a concern to kind of control voices that were critical in Japan of both the war but also new Japanese partnerships with the United States. So to some extent, this interest in a new Cold War alliance with Japan overshadowed uh, that agenda to kind of, um, for example, hold people accountable but also to push Japan to kind of make individual reparations. So I believe that Japan, with US backing, used a number of post-war treaties like the one with Indonesia in 1958 to kind of symbolically repair their relationship with Asian countries. But at the same time, there was another agenda to secure economic entry points into each economy. So this was a way of also tying Japan to each of these countries, um, ensuring Japan's economic success, but also um, markets. So the focus of those treaties was also on economic aid, and not at all on the violation of individual human rights of people who suffered during the war. But the signing of each treaty was also used by Japan, I guess, as a way of drawing a line in the sand and saying that this is an issue that has been dealt with. And we hear that repeatedly when the case of activism comes up in the 1990s, this has already been dealt with. So I guess at the time Indonesia was signing that deal in the late 1950s, there was a need for, you know, development infrastructure projects and the president at that time was Sukarno with his history of collaboration. He didn't have a lot of uh, incentive, I guess, to encourage remembrance of Japanese exploitation. And there was an interesting dynamic here as well because Sukarno was the famous leader of the Bandung Conference, the Asia-Africa Conference. He also seemed to see Japan as another Asian country rather than emphasising Japan's imperial past, which was something that eventually Koreans sort of turned to examine far more critically than Indonesia ever did. Okay. So if there is compensation in many respects, I don't know whether you could look at this as kind of like a, a Marshall plan for Japan where, you know, the U S yeah. provides all kinds of support to Europe after the war, but it needs to do that to, to, to put its customers back on their feet again, to, to recreate or to create a, a market for, for American business and, in many respects, the seems like the support that Japan gives to these countries that it had victimized uh, benefits the Japanese economy. 
Yeah, I guess that sounds very cynical, but I I believe that there are multiple agendas at work there. Uh, And also it is in the US interest to keep Japan strong and to have Japan influence other countries, maybe when it's less palatable for America to be the key influence, because this all helps the Cold War agenda. Uh, And developing the economies of Southeast Asia was also seen as another way to perhaps prevent the appeal of communism. So everything is kind of you know, wrapped up in these Cold War agendas as well, I would say. Mm. So if there's one country which sees to it that uh, victims do get compensated, it doesn't happen in Southeast Asia. It, it, it happens in the Netherlands, right? Yeah, that's right. But in this case, you say even though uh, there, is, there are payments that are made directly to, to Dutch victims uh, uh, of uh, you know, Japanese uh, uh, sexual violence. Um, there, there's a larger history in the Netherlands that o- that overshadows this past. That that it doesn't seem to have much of a place in, in the national memory. And you, you point out yeah. uh, the Dutch Resistance Museum in Amsterdam as as an example of this. Yes, indeed. So it, it must be remembered, I guess, that the, the Dutch kind of have. Well, I guess experience or their whole their population as a whole would have experienced the um, the European theater of war being subjected to the German occupation, but also those residents who went to the Netherlands after the the collapse of the Netherlands East Indies when they lost the independence war and ended up in Japan. Uh, sorry, back in the Netherlands, they of course would have had memories of the occupation, but these memories are kind of sidelined alongside memories of of the occupation of the Netherlands. So. The primary kind of emphasis in that remembrance is really on the the experience of Dutch people who stayed in the colony, who were subject to either internment camps or prisoner of war camps, and then the emphasis is on their suffering, particularly their malnutrition, uh, and, you know, uh, in general just this this prison camp experience is the primary kind of motive. But uh, it's fascinating also. Indonesia is fascinating in this sense because there were Dutch women, uh, and also some boys and also Indonesians affected by this system of enforced military prostitution. So I guess we have this comparison to make in terms of how does each country deal with the memory. And what I found interesting is that even though it's a common refrain that, you know, in Asian cultures women feel shame about sexual violence, well, the same is true in the Netherlands because when women returned after the war and tried to talk to their families, they faced very similar dynamics in the sense that some families did not want them to talk about it. They also felt shame and were shamed and subjected to, I guess, other forms of systemic silencing as well uh, in the Netherlands. And we can see that through the Resistance Museum, as you mentioned, where there are displays of the experience of the uh, internment camps in photographs clearly on the walls but then we see the experiences of the so-called comfort women only displayed on these pull-out slots that you can briefly hold out and you pull out from the wall and then they snap back into the wall. So it's as if this is also concealed um, concealed from visitors because it's not something you should dwell on. You know, you should only momentarily peep at this history. And again, uh, that would be interesting to think about to what extent this is also shameful, that to what extent it's also about ideas around race here as well, that it was Japanese soldiers who abused Dutch women. So if you look at Indonesia, so Indonesia does become an independent country and it's in a position to 
shape its own national school system, write its own history, memorialize its own past as it sees fit. How does it deal with this particular history? Yeah, that's also very interesting. So uh, I have found that there isn't a case of, you know, a complete blocking out of this past. There is still cultural memory of this past. And I look at an example, for example, um, a novel written in the 1980s that is around this story. So it's not as if it's completely silenced, but uh, it doesn't get spoken about in terms of um, the actual abuse of women's human rights until the 1990s. And there are several reasons for that. The Suharto government, which is the government that took over after Sukarno from 1965 in a very violent way through the kind of anti-communist genocide, this Suharto government really framed the remembrance of the Japanese occupation as a difficult period for all Indonesians. So, again, I guess they didn't shy away from Japanese violence, but they focused a lot on the experience of the forced labourers. But it wasn't really indicated that, of course, this was the experience uh, of people from a particular class in Indonesia. That was kind of disguised. Instead, it became the experience of all. And that served the, the political purpose, as I mentioned, of discrediting Sukarno. Uh, who had been removed from power, but it also suggested that all Indonesians had suffered together, which really wasn't the case. Um, yes, a lot of Indonesians experienced, for example, uh, lack of food, etc. but I guess the people who suffered the most were probably the forced labourers and the so-called comfort women. So the comfort women were largely not mentioned during the New Order regime. Uh, but over time, due to activism, perhaps by the early 2000s, things did begin to change. So today, for example, there is some recognition of, for example, the experiences of one woman, Madiem, we might talk about later. Her story is partly reflected in textbooks today, but I think that the Indonesian government has also been very cautious not to provoke anti-Japanese sentiment because there has been very large Japanese investment in Indonesia and the Suharto government in particular, which was in place until 1998, was very much concerned with development, never rocking the boat with foreign investors, etc. Okay. So you have a, a complicated history of collaboration. You have this heavy dependency uh, on, on Japan that's, re, that's reinforced or created by these post-war treaties. So this is not uh, a, a past that uh, the Indonesian government has released under Suharto, under Sukarno, that either one is 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 eager to put front and center, uh, and maybe not unlike uh, uh, the Netherlands that you choose another history of victimization instead, like you mentioned, one that uh, has is is more uh, unifying because it affected more people, and maybe this history of, of of sexual violence is shameful and then something that you'd rather bury. Definitely, that's that idea of shame is something that I explore a lot in the book and I try to draw attention to uh, emotions as something that's incredibly important to activism but also to the backlash and resistance to this issue. So you mentioned shame and that applies to the women themselves, the families, the communities around them can act as a barrier for them speaking out but also shames experienced on the part, I guess, of the Japanese government um, to have this history called out and from soldiers to have this history called out. There's also shame at work here as well. So I think it's a very important emotion to pay attention to when we think about what are the ramifications of opening up this history. 
Okay. So activism, uh, memory activism about this past, this struggle to to have this past recognized, to compensate, to commemorate, uh, uh, it doesn't start in Indonesia, that it really starts outside of uh, Indonesia and Japan and Korea. And this is very much a transnational uh, history that, that you're writing about. So why is it, wh- what are the conditions in Japan and Korea that favor this kind of memory activism that uh, that are very different in, in Indonesia? Yeah, thanks for that, Rick. So I guess, yes, it, it, there, it, there are some critical things about the evolving context in Korea and Japan that make this activism more possible or um, enable the comfort women to come into memory, which is a lovely term that the historian Carol Gluck uses. So in Korea, if we look at those enabling conditions, then I would point to the fact that Korea was commencing a democratization movement, a very critical democratization movement that was critical uh, of authoritarianism in their own country. And that included protest movements and protesters who had been subjected themselves to sexual violence by the police. So there was a beginning of kind of high-profile disclosures of these cases of sexual violence by the police in Korea. At the same time, there was a development of a women's movement uh, and women's studies programs in Korea that began to also critically analyse uh, contemporary but also historical patterns of sexual violence against Korean women. And all of this led to increased activism um, on in cases of sexual violence that were contemporary but also historical. And at the same time, perhaps because of new critical ideas in Korean society, other people were also looking back to the war and increasing activism originally for other cases of human rights abuses, particularly forced labour. So some of the first cases uh, of activism were for people who'd been subjected to forced labour, actually, uh, Koreans subjected to forced labour by Japan. And meanwhile, in Japan, there were other things going on. It's interesting that to me as well that some Japanese were in part inspired by Korean activists themselves, especially because Korean activists were critiquing Japanese imperialism. But there were other things as well going on in Japan that enabled this new attention to the so-called comfort women, and that included patterns in history writing, such as new attention to people's histories or histories of lower class and minority groups that until then had largely not been considered serious historical subjects. At the same time, we had in Japan the growth of a very critical women's movement that attempted also to critically interrogate how women had been involved, complicit with imperialism, as well as increased human rights advocacy and thinking by Japanese lawyers. And interesting, a lot of those Japanese lawyers were actually looking to Germany and also reflecting, you mentioned that before, they were reflecting on how had Germany dealt with its war legacies and had Japan done enough. So they were doing a lot of comparative work and thinking as well. And the Japanese uh, Bar Federation, which I examine in the book, was a key organisation there that was very concerned with Japan's war legacy and also with defending human rights more generally in Japan. So there were all of these confluences of influences that assisted, I think, uh, for Japan and Korea. For memory activism to really have an impact, that it's got to kind of pull emotional heartstrings. Uh, and uh, and here we're coming back to the point you made uh, about Tumina, that there are some victims 
whose story is a little bit too complicated and it it, it makes the work of memory activists more difficult. Uh, and and there, there are others who who fit the part uh, uh, more neatly. And you mentioned this woman, Mardiem, uh, and she becomes the icon for, uh, uh, for, for Indonesia, uh, uh, for this uh, struggle for recognition of this particular past. Uh, what, what is it about this particular woman whose story fits better than a Tamina? Why do some victim stories get be- buried and others uh, get showcased? Yeah, well, I guess this uh, this is something I tried to reflect on in the book, but it, it comes back to the issue that almost as soon as this movement had begun, uh, there were several apologies from Japanese leaders. It's important to acknowledge, and, and importantly, the 1993 Kono Statement, which acknowledged you know Japanese military responsibility for setting up the system and also offered an apology to the women. At the same time, these apologies were being made there was also ongoing resistance amongst some in Japanese society to activism on this issue, to acknowledging that the women had been forced into the system. So a common kind of refrain or dismissal of the women was that they were all paid sex workers and there was no force. So in that context, it also influenced the decisions that activists made about which uh, women, after they heard the stories of women who began to testify, which women would they put forward as kind of the spokespeople for the movement? So they made, I think, very careful choices there, but also they made choices on the basis that they hoped to move people, as you mentioned, to move people to care, to move them to support the movement, but also to move the government to take a position on this issue. So I reflect quite critically in the book on how and why after Tamina began speaking in 1992, she seemed to just quickly fade from the spotlight. Was that just a question of timing because she spoke before activism in Indonesia had really escalated? I don't think that's the whole story. So I looked at the contrasting story of Madiem, who was recruited, inverted commas, as a 14-year-old girl. She was duped into the system with a promise of work She was from Java. She was promised work in the island of of Borneo and she was taken far from her home and then subjected to, um, you know, rape like other women but also a forced abortion, which was particularly horrific. So when she told her story to Indonesian Legal Aid, which was the primary organisation advocating for survivors, it seemed to me that a strategic choice was made that her story is incredibly moving and maybe she is the best spokesperson for the movement. So there was a decision I think made to make her the face of the movement, even though originally she was actually very reluctant to even tell her story publicly because she hadn't discussed it completely with her family yet. So that strategic choice was very much, I think, necessitated. In the Indonesian context, there were many layers of resistance there because it was still a military-dominated regime human rights activism had many constraints. So they had, I guess the activists felt they had to come up with an extremely compelling case. And also because of the ideas around morality, if you had advocated for Tamina, who had admitted that she had been working as a sex worker, unfortunately there was far less compassion for women engaged in sex work, even though they were also subjected to sexual violence. The level of public sympathy was less and there was a concern that she would not be seen, perhaps, I imagine, as a worthy victim. 
So that there tend to be ideas played out across activists as well about kind of more uh, innocent or paradigmatic kind of victims who were perhaps more able to draw public sympathy and it was those women that tended to be promoted in the movement. But that also could have had the effect of excluding or discounting experiences of other women, such as Tumina. Okay. So you mentioned in the case of Indonesia that it's almost like, well, they're disunited, that they don't have uh, overarching organizations, that they lack resources to really uh, uh, take the lead in, in this movement at home and that they're heavily dependent upon on Japanese outside activists uh, to do this memory work, um, maybe to put pressure on the Japanese government. Uh, and and then at the same time, you point out that there's this reluctance uh, to when they finally do come up with a, a, at least a solution. Uh, and I think it's this Japanese Lawyers uh, Association, right? Japanese Bar Association that comes up with this Asian Women's Fund that there are disagreements about whether this is uh, uh, the right thing to do. I mean, what what was so divisive about this this uh, Asian Women's Fund as a as a response to this past? Yeah, uh, thanks. So I guess um, yes, it's true that Indonesian activism really took off after the intervention of the Japanese um, Bar Federation uh, organization who visited Indonesia and called for. Uh, accounts of actually anybody who'd experienced uh, human rights abuses during the occupations that included forced laborers as well as women who had been forced into this system. So that was the original mission of the Japanese Bar Federation. They wanted to collect evidence and they were actually traveling throughout Asia, also Australia, anywhere where there'd been people affected by um, Japanese wartime violence. They were collecting accounts and wanted to prepare a report to also give recommendations to the government on what to do with this system. And that encouraged uh, the activism of one Indonesian organisation called Indonesian Legal Aid to work on behalf of uh, women survivors but also forced labourers. So they were working for two kinds of victims, you could say, at the same time. But Indonesian Legal Aid was also dealing with many other cases. This was only one part of their entire work. They also defended farmers in Indonesia, many domestic cases, and they had limited resources as well. So these were many, many constraints, um, so much so that they were never able to even consider mounting a case in the Japanese court as, for example, you know, many other national groups did because they just didn't have the resources. So there were many um, constraints in that sense. So the decision to uh, to form the Asian Women's Fund, I think, was partly um, due to the pressure of many different kinds of activism, especially Korean activism, I think, but also the fact that this story was becoming well, well, much more well known. The Kono apology had already occurred in 1993, so the Asian Women's Fund is created, I think, in 1995, uh, and originally, I think this whole idea of the fund was very much kind of directed as a way to kind of try to resolve forever this issue. It did satisfy the demand that compensation be paid because the Japanese state continually argued that um, it, it was a violation of Japanese military principles to pay individuals. So in the case of the Asian Women's Fund, they conceived of a plan where 
there was a compromise, that there were two sources of funding, one from citizens and one from the government, but only money collected from Japanese citizens could be paid out as compensation to survivors. So the reason this fund was divisive was primarily because of that, because uh, activists and some survivors felt that this was an attempt by the Japanese government to get around uh, their own responsibility. But further to that, the way that the Asian Women's Fund framed their whole fund was quite ambiguous in terms of where did responsibility for this system lie. The suffering of the women was blamed on the war rather than on the Japanese military. So some activists really strongly rejected those two aspects of the fund, but others, including um, the lawyer Tagaki Kanichi, who was a very key connection in Indonesia, believed that maybe this would be the only chance for survivors to get compensation. So he advocated for Indonesians to take money from this. In some countries, this was interpreted as a nationalist issue, that it, you know, it would be wrong to take the money because that would be Japan shaming them again. And in some cases where women took the money, they were actually shunned themselves. At first, Indonesian women were not even part of the deal because, again, they were a low priority, their activism wasn't as visible, and there was little government support as well. But when Indonesian legal aid and survivors uh, protested that Indonesia had been excluded, they, the Asian Women's Fund decided to go directly to the Indonesian government and make a deal to establish nursing homes in Indonesia which led to outrage from survivors uh, because very few women wanted to live in these kind of facilities and the nursing homes were built, but in the end very few survivors ended up living there. So it was a very dissatisfying experience for many survivors and also for Indonesian legal aid. So if the Japanese government does address this financially, it never compensates victims individually this is done through the you know, private funds through Japanese by Japanese citizens, right? And what's what financial support the Japanese government does give? It's kind of welfare support to build these nursing homes, as you mentioned, that that in the end aren't, aren't really used by many of the victims who are still alive at that point. Yeah, that's right. So if we look at Indonesia, because part of the struggle of memory activists is to change uh, uh, larger modes of thinking and that you and in the case of the women who are caught up in this history they were the 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 victims but they were the ones who were the the objects of of shame uh and and that was part of the reason why that past was buried that they were sources of shame for themselves for their families uh and and even though you have this struggle for recognition and it's covered by the Indonesian press. And you you, you, uh, you talk at length about uh, uh, Tempo. Uh, it's a magazine or newspaper uh, that, that's covering um, the story of, of uh, the system. Uh, and it's addressed in very kind of limited limited ways. And, and you make a point that the, way, the ways in which Indonesians think about this history uh, – and how it shifts from a source of shame for the women and their families to shame for the Japanese government. And, and as really as like a, a violation of human rights as a crime against humanity, that that doesn't really happen until uh, the late 1990s and these riots that take place in May, 1998, or at least how sexual violence is understood. Because I think you you make a point that, even these riots, well, it changes their thinking about sexual violence, but they're not necessarily focused on 
the World War II past or the Asia Pacific War history. Um, how does how does this memory activism? Why does it take so long to 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 change the ways in which Indonesians think about sexual violence? How does that evolve over time? Yeah, uh, I think I wanted to be really careful in the book not to suggest that you know Indonesians were behind the rest of the world. I wanted to also, I mean, in terms of thinking about sexual violence, because it's fascinating that. In some other research I've done, I discovered that, you know, a leftist women's organization called Gowani was actually calling out Japanese um, military sexual violence very early in the 1950s. However, there were other factors going on in Indonesian society, such as, you know, the Indonesian women's movement and that organization that I mentioned, Gowani, um, was very influential. It was the largest women's organization in Indonesia in the post-war period, and they were highly critical of trends like militarism, but also uh, its effects on women. So I believe that this issue would have been on their radar. However, due to the large repression of the Indonesian left, the Indonesian genocide of 65 to um, 65 to 66, then there was a repression of leftist thinking, which included a lot of criticism of Cold War patterns of militarism. So we saw the destruction of the Indonesian women's movement from 1965 and a move to a very state-controlled, you know, kind of state control of women's activities and women's movements and the imposition of a new kind of very conservative gender order. So all of those things constrained the possibility for women's activism in Indonesia. And that same repression of 1965 also, you know, saw the rise of the Indonesian military and that Indonesian military was also perpetrating human rights abuses throughout the entire regime, certainly at the beginning through the, the genocide, but also in other disputed provinces of Indonesia. So we were seeing uh, sexual violence also occur in Aceh, uh, in what was claimed as Indonesia's territory of East Timor as well. So sexual violence and military sexual violence was ongoing, but and in that context as well, the military and Suharto severely constrained what could be said in the press, what could be debated. At the same time, we didn't have that kind of openness in history writing on focusing on different groups in society like we had in Japan. So there were all these factors that combined to constrain, I think, um, Indonesian activism. But the shift in 1998 was that uh, with the fall of the Suharto regime, uh, we saw a lot of those barriers uh, to talking about difficult histories and also recent histories collapse because the press was freed up, activism was more possible, but there was still some military resistance to also talking about contemporary cases of sexual violence. But what we began to see across activists was a new linking of historical contemporary cases going back to the Japanese occupation, but also 1965 where sexual violence was also very prevalent through to the 1998 um, riots in which um, ethnic Chinese women had also been the targets of sexual violence. So we began to see some interesting connections being made across all of these cases and a new critical thinking about the links between militarism and sexual violence in Indonesia. Okay. In May 1998 is uh, uh, it's a it's a moment of extreme sexual violence, a char- targeting uh, targeting 
Chinese women of Chinese descent in Indonesia. I mean, what what was the what was the scale of this violence? What what happened uh, in May of 1998? The May 1998 riots um, took place in several cities in Indonesia, and um, they included attacks on ethnic Chinese property and homes, um, but it seemed to be a deliberate strategy of attacking ethnic Chinese women with sexual violence. I can't remember the precise number of women affected. It was several hundred. And, but again, we also saw the same pattern that it was very difficult for women to speak out in this context because it wasn't clear at the time who the perpetrators were. So a lot of women were quite afraid and Activists were very brave in trying to collect this information about who'd been involved in the violence, but the suspicion that the Indonesian army was behind the riots and sexual violence. Um, But to this day, nobody has been held responsible for that violence. So, again, that's a frightening context of impunity when we're talking about human rights, sexual violence that occurs within one country as well. Um, So... That's the context of the May riots, but there were investigations at the time and the transition kind of President Habibi was committed to having an investigation uh, into what occurred. But unfortunately, you know, a lot of ethnic Chinese families decided to flee Indonesia at that time because they were rightly terrified about what had happened. But across women's activists and human rights activists, um, there was, you know, a lot of compassion and empathy for this community. And as I mentioned these important connections were made to talk about militarism and also um, ongoing violence, which was occurring in the disputed provinces as well. But it's a moment in time. What happens after May 1998 that the uh, government loses the, loosens the reins uh, on the media? You have a period of democratization, uh, um, uh, and it doesn't last. Right? So I think you mentioned if no one has been held accountable, that. Uh, it it's it proves to be a, what a fleeting moment in time where this there's this openness to talking about what was going on in the present, never mind the past. Uh, so, would you say that? But Indonesia has gone backwards in, in recent in recent decades. Oh, that's a hard question. I guess my book kind of ends around 2000 because I do look at the very important. Um, milestone of the uh, Women's International Tribunal held in Tokyo in 2000, which was a very unifying point, I guess, for activists from different countries across Asia in particular to come together and try to hold their own tribunal to hold the Japanese government to account because every single court case that had been brought in Japan had failed until that point. So for the movement itself, 2000 was an incredibly important year. Reflecting back on what happened in Indonesia after that, you know, activism around this case of the so-called comfort women has continued. But I guess in Indonesia, there are so many cases of past human rights abuses to deal with. It is difficult to kind of get, get your spot in the queue. And I would say the most intense memory activism that has occurred since the fall of the Sahara regime has really focused on the case of the 1965 genocide. You know, even though that is already decades away, um, you know, it is still seen as one of the most important topics to address in Indonesia. And maybe most activism has focused on that case, but it does also include cases of military sexual violence against Indonesian women. So there has been a space to engage in activism on that topic, 
but it's been very mixed in terms of uh, there seem to be initial opportunities, there was a possibility of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, there was textbook revision, but then there was backlash against all of those measures. The National Commission of Human Rights was able to investigate that history, took them around four years to produce a report, but then once they released the report, a decision was made not to act on the report. So the government most recently, even in January this year, has declared uh, that uh, it, it prefers to use non-judicial measures to serve to deal with these pasts, and it has recognised, for example, the 1965 case, uh, but it prefers to use like welfare payments as a way to deal with this and has not offered a kind of blanket apology, only an acknowledgement that these human rights abuses occurred. So Indonesia has enduring problems with uh, impunity in relation to military violence. So the 1998 case is only one of many. There's a long list uh, of cases in which very few people have been held to account. Uh, so, yeah, in that context, again, uh, it's difficult for any kind of attention uh, to the so-called comfort women as well, perhaps because of the distance of time as well. Kate McGregor, thank you for taking time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Kate McGregor is professor in Southeast Asian history, historical and philosophical studies at the University of Melbourne. I've been talking with her today about her book, Systemic Silencing, Activism, Memory and Sexual Violence in Indonesia. Next month, we'll return to Southeast Asia. I'll be talking with Bath University professor Peter Manning about his work on transitional justice and the memory of the Cambodian genocide. If you've enjoyed this or other episodes of Realms of Memory, please tell a friend and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. I'm Rick Dadarian. See you soon.